Hello, and welcome to some Derps Talk About Movies. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I'm your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about The Magnificent Seven. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks oh, what we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, we like to talk about movies, which is great because movies are awesome. Um, but before that... We do want to recap. Do we play? We played Rune Lords. Okay, we so we, we want to record re- recap some of the D and D games we played this week. We played Rune Lords. We did not play Hell's Rebels. Um, Rune Lords this week was just a was just the, honestly the first part of a fight. Um, it seems as though Mark has condensed all of the mini bosses that we were set up to fight as part of kind of one giant continuous encounter uh, in this uh, in this castle. Um, you know, we fought, we fought Kaven, who betrayed me again, whatever, <laughs> right? Um, I don't actually, I don't actually have a good, a good set of context on some of the other part. Or like the, so Sanguinette was a character that you guys played with before, right? In the, so in the all, old all of the, all of the characters. So in the old version, Mark attempted to do a side story where he played as an evil party and Mugnak, Sanguinette. The uh, the void kineticist who was like a monk in that game, um, uh, Funk, and I think that's it. We're all old characters. Um, Mugnak was mine. Funk was was Matt's. Uh, kineticist was Nick's, and Sanguinette was Linda's. Um, and so, like Nick and I know what's up, I guess, with all of them. Um, and it's kind of it's a neat throwback for us because like, um. You know, it's 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 our characters and and Mark uh up kind of updated and optimized them a little bit with some of the newer stuff. Um like Mugnak was a uh, a gun wizard with levels that are that went into arcane trickster. Um and Mark Mark did some stuff with that that made it a little bit crazier. Um, especially since, you know, Mark's king of third party and whatnot. But um like, you know, it, it's all stuff that we know. Um I think part of it too with Sanguinette is um, Linda was was obviously a newer player, and so I think Mark just really, uh, like, really took his time to be able to like flex his muscles with the optimization on Sanguinette mm-hmm. um, to make her like a really powerful character. I was, you know, I was obviously uh, preoccupied with Caven and what was going on going in on my half of the fight. Did you feel like Sanguinette was tough to take down for uh, for you guys on that end? Well, he, she, it seemed like she was, I was like, well, she, she went and fucked up Khan real hard. Yeah, I saw um, that. And then she kept draining all of his constitution. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty, pretty hardcore. No, it, it was, it's funny because like, you know, I, I've obviously built Wooden Wanderer to be more of a warrior oracle than a cast oracle, but all I did, all I did so far this fight has been cast stupid spells. Um, <laughs> um, like either heal spells on you or like animate statues or summon stampedes like mango gets to pull out his dumb toys and fuck around with the battle map um thus far uh, there's the map is also so big that i spend a lot of time just moving like yeah definitely i used to kind of appreciate that um something that really bugs me about uh some of the paizo maps that we we get with the adventure paths is that they do seem very small and so you know movement can get a little bit trivial and you can get into these fights where everything is a five foot step full attack um because big 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 movement doesn't 
uh, doesn't really track in the same way. So I appreciate that. You know, I appreciate that on Mark finding finding big big fat maps to make big fat map kind of battles happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it is kind of sad that I haven't been able to hit anybody with my beat stick yet, but you know, I'm sure that'll there'll be a point. <laughs> Where yeah, I don't need to be know. casting, like, heal on you seven Shit times. Happens. Do you like it? So do you like it when Mark brings back these, uh, like, these old characters kind of thing? I think it's neat. Um, I think that, like, there's the danger of it becoming tiresome. Like, I think if every encounter from now until the end of the book was some variation of an old party that existed, it would be tiresome. But, like... Um, I don't know if you've had any cameos from, uh, from, from your guys, uh, game, uh, like your, your endless winter campaign, but, um, the fact that it's there just once, right. And like our, our good party characters had cameos as like the heroes of Sandpoint, right. But they were never like, they're all just kind of there as like, as like static characters. We fought them once in the arena, I guess, but like. That was so f- long ago, and it was in, it was like the the context was so different. Um, like it, it it's it's okay to me because it does feel like it's a continuation of that world, in, in a lot of ways. Where obviously there's some uh, adjustment that like you know, the heroes of standpoint, stand standpoint, and whatever happened with the evil party, we didn't get through a lot with the evil party before we called that campaign. So it's not like there was a lot of history there, but it was, it's it's neat to see them again. Um. And I feel like I'd be annoyed if I had to interact with them to a level where he had to, like, represent them, right? Like, like I think you do a good job with, like, Ralph in, in Hell's Rebels, um, but I could see myself being annoyed if you played Ralph wrong, and that's the danger you run into with this as well, but you don't see any personality. It's all just kind of... It, it's all just like the fight, so uh, it doesn't bother me too much. So how does that compare then? I guess because I do, the, I, you know, I do the same thing, but I do it from the opposite perspective, right? You never see Ralph fight, right? But he comes in, obviously, Mateo, Taylor, um, you know, Tonric and Gonder are, you know, like are are my characters. Aluria is, you know, another one of our friends' characters. These are all these are all characters and names and concepts that are, uh, to a certain extent, kind of uh, recycled. Does that is that, like? How, how, how do you compare the, how do you compare compare them between Mark's game and this one right um so like it's it, <coughs> excuse me it, it's so different because like Mark's game it's it's all just kind of like the the, the mechanical theme of the character because the personality just doesn't have an opportunity to come out and so that's fine right like it's and even if he changed his significant, like, I guess you'd have to ask Nick about how he feels because his character's one that went through the most radical change. Um, but that funny story, that character ended up running away early, like, early in one of the adventures that he re-rolled um, for the evil party, which was actually a really cool moment in that game, right? Like, it's like, well, shit's fucked. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. And he just, it's an evil character, so he just <laughs> ran away. <laughs> that is actually kind of funny. Um, and uh, I've got some... Uh, I've got some deeper thoughts about that too. If we ever want to return to that, just kind of like as, as a side party, the characters felt more disposable. So it felt a little bit more freeing, but um, in terms of your game, right? Like um, there are certain characters I, I recognize in, in your set of things. Um, and they're like, I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't think that they're necessarily like a great thing, but I don't, I don't have any problem with them. Like, I'm very neutral about it. Right. Like you do it. 
like you, you do it fine. Like, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to be kind no, of, fair. Like, I mean, the, the, I'm, so, like, I'm explicitly I'm not, not yeah. trying to, to like say it's bad. Like, it's just, I don't really care that much. And, enough. and like I said, like, so this, this Ralph is, is different than the way I played Ralph. Um, you know, like he, he says Mateo's name properly and he's a little bit different, but you've got the spirit really correct. Um, and so that's okay with me. I think if you like, let's say if you played Ralph, like Barry played Fortis, I'd be aggravated that Ralph was, was, was being, was, was not being Ralph. Yeah, um, that, that's fair. I suppose. Uh, I guess the other one is like Atticus. Um, Atticus, so Atticus, Atticus hasn't had a lot of interaction, right? Like, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Um, but you know, it's again like he's not exactly the same, but he's got like the same spirit of character, right? Like, like the the, the thing that that about Atticus was always the, the thing was supposed to be like the his his like more scholarly librarian side is juxtaposed to his rager side, but we don't really see him rage. Yeah, so, that's true. So you don't really get that, and you you know he seems to be a scholar, so you know that that works. Um, yeah, I mean, and also, uh, so, uh, it, it is also kind I, of like, like from a very base perspective, it's like, oh boy, it's one of my characters. Oh boy. Like, there, yeah, there's I mean, always it, a little bit of that. It's also, uh, I, I like, see, to me, one of the greater things about doing this, uh, in the context of a D&D campaign, and to be honest, I don't know that I'll really be able to pull it off quite to the extent that I have been with Hell's Rebels, because I think a lot of these have been, like, names that haven't quite been associated with stuff, right? It's not like you have RP'd with Tonric. Right. On, right. You know, it's not like you were RPing with Chad and Rick on WoW for like, you know, years or whatever. And so you have this – if we were playing with Lou, right, you – she would have this cemented in stone image of Tonric, right? And so I don't know that I, – I don't know that a Tonric who came out in Hell's Rebels could be – anything but like a shadow necessarily or like a kind of reflection but like you know Atticus was a win for me because I needed I needed someone there right just for story purposes I needed someone there that could explain the mark of Cyrexis to Marigrug um and it was it was a perfect fit right Uh, and and so being able to name him Atticus prevented me from having to create a character that's otherwise disposable right for instance the blacksmith do you remember the blacksmith's name uh that you guys buy that hypothetically you buy you know uh no i don't yeah so her name just for the record is brunhilde valcon right completely made up i i made her up for this campaign right she and atticus to me are about the same level of kind of like character right i'm not i'm not trying to compare atticus to like bars like through obviously right, right. we all know bars like through's name and even some of his higher level right like kind of like officials or uh, or or you know other people that are interacting with with the characters we all remember elector fortnax um <clears throat> But Atticus is nice because I can use that character, right, as kind of a shorthand to keep him so that I can just kind of, like, whip it out and we all have and we all have something to kind of, like, go off of. Otherwise, I kind of think th- some of those minor characters get uh, a little bit lost in the weeds. Yeah, pl- plus, uh, kind of along those same lines, it's like, you know, if you use a character that, like, at, like that some of us know, right, you'll guarantee that enough of us kind of ha- also have that kind of baseline, right? Like, when you say... At, if, if you say, who explained to Maragrug about his mark, I think nobody except for me and Maragrug will be able to say it. Because he, he's that kind of character, right? Like, he's like a very right. 
Um, but you guarantee that I will know that even though, even though Beauregard doesn't act, like, like normally I wouldn't remember that because it's not really anything kind of down my lane. Mm-hmm. Um, but that you've kind of like invested me, you've kind of invested me in that storyline because you've involved my previous character. Like you, you've invested, you haven't invested Beauregard, but you've invested Michael. Um, and maybe I'll cut my last name from that. Um, <laughs> you've invested a, a mango into, into the storyline. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, and I also, I you know, I also have a hard time naming characters, so this is also yeah. an easy way for me to avoid having to come up with, you know, new names for people all of the time. There's a couple of new characters, I suppose, that I that I like the names of. Like, I like Magnus Del Raya, the um, uh, that blind seer that like showed people visions of like death and stuff like that. That was pretty sweet. He was pretty. He was pretty awesome. Um, but you know, yeah. Anyway. Um, I am, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm interested by this evil party. Maybe we'll have, like, a full podcast on it. Um, because I kind of think there, I think there's something to side campaigns, but I also think that they're a bad idea fundamentally, right? Um, I don't think, hmm. Like, not a bad idea in the sense, I think that sometimes, right, like, the circumstances of whatever situation can justify a side campaign, but I would say that on the whole, 95% of side campaigns are, are, not a smart investment of time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it was an attempt to kind of deal with, with some level of fatigue. Um, that, that campaign had its own set of problems, um, that I, that we can go into at some, at some other point, but it was the, the evil campaign was kind of a breath of fresh air, but it also kind of had the effect of, because it had the same type of scheduling issues that we always have. Um, we kind of got, we kind of got deep in. We got it, not even that deep, but we, we got into the evil campaign, and then that one started to kind of have the same kind of lagging behind issues. And at that point, we're like two two campaigns into like falling off course. It, it kind of spelled the death knell. But um, yeah, I think that's the thing that I would fear about a side campaign. Like the number one problem with a side campaign, you know, if, uh, uh, to put on like a like a writer's hat, right? They t- people y- using flashbacks, right? is not something that is, like, recommended from, like, a writing perspective. Because a lot of the time, right, a flashback is all exposition and it puts a big stop in, you know, like a halt to the story, right? Uh, And the plot doesn't, you know, and the plot doesn't move forward. Um, But obviously there are plenty of circumstances where flashbacks make sense, right? Um, And where it's a good idea to to use them to explain something um or to use them to add right like mystery or suspense i think by the way that is the number one most important use of a flashback um is to add mystery and suspense to something that's going on kind of like in the present or whatever um but it's you know it's it's one of those things that i think of like i I think of in the same category right by default flashbacks are bad bad storytelling right um and you have to justify their presence in a way um to in order to uh in order to make them work and i think the same thing is true for you know like a side campaign right like yeah you can invest characters in kind of a new story but unless that you know unless that arc is relatively small and at what point does it a side campaign become a side adventure become a side one shot right you know um I feel like putting the main characters and the and the main plot on hold can just really uh, throw everything you know off off course. 
Yeah, I, I feel like it, it could work if you do, like, alternating, right? Like, if you set it up so that, like, there's, like, obsession with one set of, with one with one member of the party, or one set of, one party and adventure with another party, and you kind of go back and forth, like, session to session, I think that could work, but, like, imagine watching your, like, to use your flashback example, imagine watching your favorite TV show, and there's a flashback, um, and then the next three episodes are that flashback, and then the fourth episode is back in the present. You're like, what, what, what? Like, like you, you just kind of like miss those pieces, which is kind of, I think, what happened with with the evil with the evil adventure, um, in in in, in the first edition of Rune Lords. To be honest, um, I definitely feel that, and I would actually love to run a game like that. Um, I would specifically love to a game to run a game like that that's twice weekly. And you play um, one party on the, like Tuesdays, one party on Thursdays, or something like one that. One party on Tuesday, one party on Thursday, and I think it would have I would have two two separate GMs for it too. Ooh, um, you know, so so what I would love to see is almost kind of like a shared universe thing where you have these two parties that are working towards maybe similar, maybe different, but certainly like like related kind of kinds of goals. Um, and they're kind of moving through the story at like at like a parallel pace. I think that's really cool and really interesting. Unfortunately, I think it would would require like a year's worth of prep work, right? Yeah. Um, because uh, you know my ability to change story. You know, for instance, we were talking about this before the cast. I upended a lot. Of, we're going to be playing Hell's Rebels right after this. I upended a lot of what I wanted to do in this session of Hell's Rebels because you know I didn't like the uh, the. Uh, uh, I didn't like kind of the outline of the session that I had planned and I wanted to make it a little bit more, uh, you know, I wanted there to be, this is going to sound weird, but for some reasons, the way I want to describe this, uh, I wanted there to be more like more gristle to it uh, and make it like tougher to chew than just um, kind of like following it plot point to plot point. So, you know, so I added, you know, I added a subsystem. I changed up some of the, you know, some of the context of the story, added something, dropped some, you know, all this other kind of stuff. I can make these kinds of decisions on the fly when it comes to Hell's Rebels because I'm not coordinating with anybody else. The only other, per the only person I need permission for in order to change, you know, the kind of story progression for this individual session is, surprise, me, right? And I'm going to approve everything. Um, so... When when you do it when you do it in kind of tandem like that it it you you have to have a very clear outline of where you are moving forward um, yeah and I, uh, uh, you have to be like really careful about what kind of you know game changing switches you're willing to be making on the on the fly yeah I was gonna say I, for practical reasons I think two GM sounds neat but I feel like it like for coherence one GM would be like the 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 quote-unquote right way to do that um kind of orchestrating the, Man, the one the full gm store. two nights oh God. no it'd be tough right yeah but, like, i wouldn't envy anybody that right um but you yeah. know to be honest though i mean like to be honest i could totally see myself doing that like you know like if i was like let's say if i was like unemployed or like i won the lottery i would run that kind of campaign in yeah. a heartbeat right <laughs> because i think you know i actually I, I like doing prep work just fine right i will pour over these you know the homemade maps in roll 20 um <laughs> i will i will pour over these homemade maps in roll 20 for just like hours and hours and hours uh in order to get them you know in order to get them feeling good in order to get them like perfect or whatever uh but uh you know there's just not enough hours in the day uh to get that you know to get that much prep work done for for two sessions a week um but you know it's what it is uh 
but yeah anyway what uh you know what video uh video games have you been playing um i've been playing uh i played world of warcraft of course okay we'll um, get to that get to the other game uh <laughs> <laughs> i've been playing i played a, a bit of battle right um battle right is a uh it's a what in the words of Total Biscuit, it's League of Legends with no PvE elements, or it's World of Warcraft arenas if they were good. Um, it is a, uh, it's top-down style. It's like, it, it's essentially like if you boiled MOBAs down to their team fights. Um, and it's very fun. It's very engaging. It's only a couple minutes per fight, and it's a best of five rounds. And so it, it feels very bite-sized. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, the, the game's set up to have kind of... It's got, like, cosmetics. And it's got the same type of daily quest structure as, as uh, Hearthstone has. Um, and I really do enjoy it. But I'm kind of getting to the point where I'm a little bit tired of playing it by myself. Like, I feel like this game would be amazing fun with another player or two to do twos or threes with. I don't know how long it can sustain my attention while I'm playing solo. Um, just because I feel like the, 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 the meat of this game comes when you're playing with other people, um, and, or, you know, kind of like the, the teamwork aspect. And one, one thing that Walt does have over this game is that when you're kind of in lane, you can talk to your teammates with chat with that, with relative ease and not a lot of like, you, like typing is not a problem. Um, in this game you can type, but like you're going at like 10,000 miles an hour. Like it's a constant team fight. You don't have a lot of time to stop moving your character and chat and then try and get back into whatever you're doing yeah definitely i feel that um i mean to be honest i've been playing warcraft arenas uh world of warcraft arenas at least a little bit and uh it is remarkable um you know some arenas can actually last for quite a while um you know like five five ten minutes right like sometimes you'll get uh, like you'll re-up just because you know the nature of healers in these kinds of games or whatever um but you know the vast majority of them are you know a minute a minute and a half right where things are you know it is super super kind of like high demanding coordination um to uh to kind of demand demand your attention which isn't something that allows for you kind of have to be in voice in order to make like coordinated threes a thing otherwise you're just kind of kind of have to like hope that in the prep window you can call a target and you know make make it work kind of thing um what uh you know does it have all the kinds of mechanics for like wow pvp like on a on a minutia level what, what, what do you mean by that? So, you know, things like interrupting, right? Like, what what, what like what are the durations of the CCs like? Are there diminishing returns? I'm just wondering. Okay, so it, it's, it's more like it's more like lol in that way. Okay. Um, the CCs are around that time. Um, everything's a skill shot is one of, is one of the things, which is something I love, right? Even even the basic auto attacks. Um, and like, it's 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 like the the so. The the stuns there's like several categories of of stun. Um, there's like your basic stun, which is usually like one to two seconds. There's um, uh, th- there's petrify and incapacitate. Incapacitate is usually the longest. It's it's if you take damage, it breaks the effect, and and petrify is somewhere in between the two. But you like you like turn into a stone statue and then you gain a shield, and you can damage them through the shield. But if they if 
and you can keep damaging them afterwards. It's not like breaking the shield would break the effect, but it's kind of like a like a medium thing. Like you petrify someone, and then if everybody focuses mm-hmm. on them, you could do a bunch of damage to them. But if right, you right, just right. but if you're just using it for like the CC, you can't like casually do damage to them. Like you can with a stun. Um, there's um, there's a bunch of like individual mechanics too. Like there's there's a couple different reflects in the game, which is a neat neat thing to me. Um, uh, everything kind of like er- everything is more on on the lull time scale, I'd say, than on the okay. or on like on the, your on your typical moment. Is there time scale. is there a gl- is there a global cooldown? Um, to abilities and stuff. N- uh, no, but I don't think that like that really ever comes into play. Like, Oof. okay. Like it, you know, so be uh to to kind of the reason I ask this question from kind of like a digging into, you know, why uh why I, why I ask that question from like a you know a details perspective is I think the global cooldown is what allows long duration CC to work in Warcraft. I think it's okay to be first of all I think it's okay to be something like cycloned or like paralyzed for ten seconds because you can't take damage or else you'll be it with cyclone you can't take damage at all. With Paralyze, Hex, uh, uh, what is it, Polymorph, uh, Sap, right? You can't take damage or else it'll break. I think they're really more about eight seconds. Um, and then I think kind of um, same thing with like Fear or whatever. Um, uh, and then there are kind of like the you can take damage CCs, right? Stormbolt, uh, Hammer of Justice. These are kind of four to five seconds. But the reason I think that that actually works in World of Warcraft is because of the global cooldown. Um, because, you know, in, in WoW, right, um, I can stun you with Stormbolt as a warrior. I can stun you with Stormbolt for four seconds. That'll get me, you know, if I, if I trigger it well, um, that'll get me three global cooldowns into my right like if i have enough haste and all that other kind of stuff that'll give me three global global cooldowns of damage onto you and that's just not enough to burst somebody down that much um in lol a five second stun is a death sentence right there's no way uh but they, but you know most abilities don't have uh have global cooldowns so it is a very it, it is a very easy thing to be burst down in one or two seconds um comparatively so i i think part of it is that the damages scale differently like you don't have your your, you know your your vigar ults that do like half a half a health bar um and like i said like the your pure stun is more in the one to two second range anyway um like the the biggest thing is that like everything has a cooldown um even like the basic attack has like a a shorter cooldown but still has a cooldown so like the fastest you can crap out damage isn't all that fast in the first place, um, unless you've got some like good coordination going on, which which of course is is nice. Um, but I I I I don't think that it's necessary to have that a kind of GCD um, handicap, as it were. Um, also, something that's that's kind of neat is that like almost everybody if not everybody has some sort of mobility available to them fairly easily. Um, like, like a movement ability that, that, that kind of can get you into or out of trouble relatively quickly. Um, and like little things like the, the range champions just by their nature kind of attack more slowly than the melee champions, which can get, um, which can get attacks off faster. Also the melee attack champions tend to like swing their weapons. So, um, which sounds stupid, but like, 
when you're playing a, uh, a skill shot based game, the the aim radius on a melee attack is just much more generous in terms of connecting than a uh, than, than on a ranged champion, which is which is usually this narrow missile. Um, and gotcha. I, it, that it makes fe- sense. Yeah. It feels very balanced to me, and um, the community also f- thinks it feels very balanced, which is you know almost unheard of in video games. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh. like the general consensus is every hero is pretty is, is pretty well balanced, except for maybe Rook, who might be a little bit weak. Um, guess which hero I decided was my favorite before I knew that. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's 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 a lot of fun, and it's kind of like it's. It's, it's great to me because, like, I can sit down and I can play a game and be done in five, ten minutes and, like, not be, like, you know, there are game everybody's had those games of League of Legends where at, like, ten minutes you're down 5-0 and it's kind of like, well, it's ten more minutes before I can go play another game type, type of type of deal. Um, or, or, you know, just, just for whatever reason. Or um, the, other, the other side of this coin, which is, you know, the game's really tight and it goes to 40 minutes and... And then, like you know, one bad team, one good or bad team fight decides the game. Um, and like, if you're on the losing end of that, that feels really painful because you played really well, and ultimately the other team kind of nudged you up, but it still feels bad to lose that, right? Like, right, right, definitely. Um, and um, even in this situation, like e- even in uh, in this game, even when the games are really close, it's only five or ten minutes at most. You can just kind of get back on that horse and go again. And and when the fights are really close, like that might not be the end of the game, right? Like the fight's really close and that's one round when it's won or lost. And then you've got, um, you know, best of five to, 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 to hit that end state um, and, and to really bring it back. And losing that fight doesn't make you any worse for the next round. Like, gotcha. Um, Cause there, there's, there's no, there's no items. There's no, um, there's no like, like kind of like winner's advantage type of deal at all. Right. Um, you know, that's actually pretty interesting. Um, I, I have told myself that I'm going to give it a try, though, like ripping me from the teat of, of Blizzard and World of Warcraft has been uh, a mighty feat uh, recently. But uh, we are 30 minutes in. I'm pretty sure we've talked enough about, wow, we don't need to go any further into uh, into that. And we are here to talk about The Magnificent Seven. Um, yeah, so The Magnificent Seven is a remake of a film from 1960, I believe, uh, which is a remake of the classic Seven Samurai by uh, Kurosawa. Super classic. Um, so I think it was only it was remade like five or six years after the like. Magnus yeah, Seven is the, five the, or six the, origi- years. the original Seven Samurai is what uh, was uh, uh, in the 1950s. Um, um, it's a, it's a classic story that has been told time and time again. It's a story so classic that there is a spin-off comedy genre um, that has its own set of entries in the field. Um, the, it's a classic story of essentially a group is under attack, or a group has been given a, a, a dark promise by an antagonist, right? Either pay up, give your thing in, or whatever, or you surrender to me, I'll be back in like X amount of time. And in the intervening time, um, they gather some heroes... In the, the case of the more uh, of the more lo- uh, loyal ones, seven of them, um, and then these seven people lead lead the the oppressed in a defense um, that they ultimately win. Um, 
the comedy genre. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the comedy genre is usually this exact same plot, except the heroes are actors. Like, every time it's the heroes are actors, and the actors don't realize that they're actually fighting, and then the peop- the oppressed don't realize that they're actors. Um, these entries here are, are uh, Galaxy Quest, Bugs Life, and Three Amigos. Um, but, you know, it's such a, cl- like I said, such a classic story that it's got not only, like, a dozen kind of stories in, a dozen movies in, in the kind of main set, but also a fair number of movies in, in the comedy version of this as well. You know, um, and, and, and not to mention um, that I think, uh, so, you know, Cards on the Table, when asked what my favorite movie of all time is, typically my response is Seven Samurai. And it's not, and my response is not Seven Samurai in the way it is for a lot of my favorite stuff, right? Uh, you know, like Metallica is my favorite band because I just, you know, I could listen to Metallica kind of like whenever, right? Um, I, you know, The Venture Brothers is my favorite TV show and I could just go and watch it and rewatch it and rewatch it, right? Sometimes end to end uh, because of just like how much I love it. Seven Samurai isn't something that's that like kind of accessible. Uh, but what I appreciate so much about it is that it it kind of has its DNA in everything. It's like the missing, it's like, you know, the not like the missing link, but like, you know, the ape ancestor uh, to all modern action movies, right? Without Seven Samurai, you know, the Avengers looks different. Lord of the Rings is entirely different, right? Um, these, you know, even these movies, right, where, where you wouldn't even think, right, like, oh, is that... But, like, basically any ensemble action movie has, you know, a ton of its DNA kind of pulled from, uh, pulled from Seven Samurai, and I can't help but just, like, go nuts over that. Um... On top of the fact that, yes, it's been, like, more directly remade from, like, a plot, you know, like, uh, Bugs Life is obviously, quite literally, right, about uh, a group of, a group of misfit warriors or whatever, uh, you know, defending, yeah, these ones are actors, I suppose, Uh, but they do end up being warriors, okay? Yeah, um, but it's it's the comedy, it's the comedy version, the reason I bring that up is it's the comedy version, the comedy version started with Three Amigos, which is... Three, three, which is like Steve Martin and Short. Martin Short, and uh, I think you know same type, but it, it, that's a little bit more directly applicable because um, they're fighting Mexican bandits, and that's in the original Magnificent Seven. To bring it back to kind of core topic, um, it's cowboys fighting against Mexican bandits. Obviously, this iteration is is different. It's uh, it's it's a mining town on the frontier that's being oppressed by a, by a by a, a robber baron essentially, um, but just kind of to to kind of go back to that history a little bit, um, uh, Seven Samurai. I I have watched Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven, Battle Beyond the Stars, Hawk the Slayer, and the New Magnificent Seven, all kind of in a very short period of time, um, the original. Seven Samurai is, I agree with Buddy, quite excellent. It's got excellent cinematography. Dark Souls fans, you should go watch that movie because there'll be a moment you'll be like, that's the bonfire. And it's 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 like it's so it's so wonderfully shot and wonderfully done. Um Magnificent Seven, the original, is unfortunately a mediocre remake of Seven Samurai at best. And I think it's really held back by its attempts to ape a lot of the seven samurai directly. Like there are some scenes that have no place in the movie that are just carbon copies 
of the of the things that happened in the Seven Samurai, um, and I think the new movie um, did a did a good job in getting enough away from that original the the both originals to kind of be its own thing and tell a tell a compelling story. Um, I really liked um, Magnificent Seven. I didn't think it was anything that blew me away. Um, what did you think, buddy? Just base base opinions. The new Magnificent Seven, um, to me, is a uh, it's like the perfect movie to come out in the middle of September, right? If this had come out during the like in the middle of the summer, it would have been absolutely just like slaughtered by some of the more kind of powerful blockbuster fare. Um, to me, this is the, the this is kind of like the modern version of uh, of kind of like a B movie, um, but like the the very best of you know how, you know like. It, it's I don't, like I don't think it's a secret that right like some of people's favorite movies are B movies right Star Wars or, or yeah right like Star Wars right like Star Wars to me is a you know it's, it's like is a good you're like this is a good B movie kind of thing right like a super genre picture that like knows it's a genre picture and wants to be a genre picture this is exactly what Magnificent Seven is to me right it didn't blow me out of the water it didn't do anything I mean I think Star Wars is better than this Magnificent Seven because of a couple of reasons obviously sure. um, but um, but to me, you know, this is a movie that it's not ambitious, right? It's not trying to, you know, it's not trying to be profound or insightful um, on any kind of right level, right? It, it does completely away with, um, well, not completely away with, but mostly away with kind of the, uh, you know, in... The actual in in the the original Seven Samurai, there's uh, you know politicking about you know class warfare, um, and there's kind of different you know all of these kinds of different character arcs. There's really not all that much of the same stuff in Magnificent Seven. Most of these characters are basically the same from beginning to end. Um, but uh, but like it it is it, it it like but I don't want I'm not I'm not trying to be down on it, right? I'm just trying to say like this is this is a movie that like. You know, it didn't shoot for the it didn't shoot for the stars, right? It was like I want to land on the moon. It landed on the moon, right? Planted a flag, left a few footprints, came home just fine, right? You know, it it, it, it accomplished its goal, and I probably will forget it six months from down the line. But I was never, you know, I never had a uh, I I wasn't angry that I saw it. It wasn't a waste of my time, um, and uh, it's not like you know, it's not like I wanted to walk out uh, halfway through. Yeah, I, I think I've got a slightly more positive opinion of it than that. Um, I do like Westerns quite a bit, so maybe that's got something to do with it. But I, I, I thought it was... I, I I reveled kind of in the details, um, especially in, in, in some of the moments that were like... like th So there are two quotes that I recognized from the original Magnificent Seven, uh, which are, um, you know, I've been offered a lot, but never everything. Um and uh, the, it's one of the last lines that the bad guy says was it, which is um, God wouldn't have, if they didn't, if they, it's something like if they shouldn't have been short, God, God wouldn't have made them sheep or, or something like something. I'll, I'll, I'll look up this quote. Cause it's a very good quote and it's kind of like a throwaway in the first one. Um, but it in, was pretty good. That was a pretty was, good line in the second one. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it was done so much better in, in this one, you know? So, you know, to be honest, um, uh, I don't think it's a perfect movie, and I think the the you know the biggest misstep I think um, um, 
was kind of characterizing the first of all i don't think there's enough time in this movie um i think it is paced too quickly and uh this is you know there's a reason that the lord of the rings is you know three hours right it's because you know you know there's a reason that lord of the rings is three hours and it's not like sauron ever gets to make like a big villain speech right you don't have the you don't have the budget for that kind of thing you really need to kind of get with these characters and understand these characters i think in order for that story to kind of like work and i think the original lord of the rings all three of those movies are legit masterpieces right you know honestly some of uh kind of like the best modern cinema that we've kind of put out there right um, to me, this, uh, th- you know, this one, it, it went too quickly and we didn't quite get to know some of these characters enough, um, in order to, uh, uh, in order to like make stuff worth it. I, I appreciate that, that it had the same kind of body count that Seven Samurai had. It actually ends on the exact same shot, uh, which is, you know, the four graves of the samurai that died blowing, you know, kind of blowing in the wind. Also same um, shot of the original, uh, in the original Magnificent Seven. Yeah, uh, you know, fair enough. Um, and uh, uh, and I think that it definitely worked, right? But it worked a lot more because, you know, like Ethan Hawke's character gets the most transparent character arc, right? And then you kind of have just behind him, Chris Pratt also gets, but, you know, kind of not not super, right? You know, these are, these are less, these are less arcs like, you know, these are, you know, these are, these are layups right they're not three pointers um and uh and so you know it hits you know it hits you i think when ethan hawk dies it hits you when chris pratt dies um it it, it hits you when all of them die right but like you know there, i think there's a very kind of clear descending order and it's like yeah i definitely liked uh you know i definitely liked vincent d'onofrio i definitely felt for that character a lot and everything like that but it wasn't quite as like gut-wrenching um as some of the other uh, as you know some of these other deaths uh, could be with the appropriate amount of kind of setup, right? Yeah. See, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I was very impacted by Vincent D'Onofrio's death, but I, I kind of, I really like that character. I really like Jack Horn. Um, but I, uh, kind of on that note, I think that like, actually, like it, it, to keep it to the the original Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai, and this this movie, I actually think that this movie did the best at characterizing the most characters, right? Like. I feel like the original Sam Samurai goes deep on a couple characters. Um, and the Magnificent Seven is kind of all over the place. Um, but it does it does similar things. It goes deep on a, on a couple different characters. I felt like the... But, like, there's a lot of, like, as you've put it in some of our previous discussions, a lot of, like, Tier 2 Samurai, as it were. Yeah. Um, I feel like this, this movie did a much better job at characterizing... Every character except for like Vasquez and the Comanche and Red Red Harvest is named the Comanche. Like those are the only two characters that I felt like were really wanting for characterization. Um. Uh, and and I think that's something that it actually does a, a little bit better than than even the original. Interesting. Um. You know, I have to kind of say. Uh... I think some of this also just kind of works because of actors a little bit more than it does because of, like, the movie or the script, right? I think Vincent D'Onofrio brings Vincent D'Onofrio. You know, this is also true for Denzel Washington, right? If a no-name actor, right, is playing, right, you know, Nate Parker, as kind of a, a shitty example. I'm sorry, film Twitter, if you pay attention to this. But Nate Parker is a new black man who's kind of just, like, burst onto the scene, right? Nobody knows who Nate Parker is. They, they haven't seen him in, in these other movies or anything like that. If he was playing, um, you know, the lead character, um, uh, uh, Sam, you, uh, uh, you don't 
get as much from that character, right? Because just because it's Denzel Washington on the screen, right? And just because it's Denzel Washington doing, right, kind of typical Denzel Washington. By the way, this also applies to Chris Pratt doing Chris Pratt, right? Vincent D'Onofrio kind of doing Vincent D'Onofrio. They bring enough of their baggage to... They bring enough of themselves kind of to the screen that it makes it that it just kind of like makes it work, right? That character that character is defined almost entirely, um, and I think is and I think it's really interesting, right? Uh, and has good affectation and personality almost entirely because Denzel Washington is a good performer and he's an A-list. You know, this is the same kind of thing, by the way, that I attributed to Suicide Squad, right? You know, on the script they didn't have super much, right? But Will Smith is an A-lister, right? On the script, I don't think you know Sam Chisholm had that much, but Denzel Washington is an A-lister, and he kind of powered that. He, he kind of like carried that that character into tier one status uh for me um, um I, I definitely feel that I, I think i disagree with you a little bit on vincent d'onofrio spe- specifically um I, I don't think that like like i think he did so i think vincent d'onofrio did an excellent job with that character but i don't think that was because i had vincent d'onofrio baggage right like i don't see i don't see uh kingpin in in jack horn uh, it, it is, is what I think you're going for, right? Or is uh, you know, a little bit. I mean, soft-spoken, a little bit wonky, big guy is kind of like okay. I, 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 I the, to me, to me, the kind of triangulation here is like you know, you've got Kingpin, um, you've got uh, uh, shit. What is his character's name in Full Metal Jacket? Have you seen Full Metal Jacket? The I have Kubrick not. Movie. Um, uh, he, so he played God, Sergeant Pyle. Um, he plays. He plays. Uh, uh, Wait, he's he plays, Pyle. Yeah, or Private Pile. Yeah, he's Private Pile. Oh, I didn't know Jacket. that. Yeah, no, dude, that's him. Like, that's, I, I, I've <laughs> seen the Ar- the Arlie Ermy scene. I haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah, uh, and so anyway, like uh, you know, a little bit off in the head, soft spoken, big guy is like the Vincent D'Onofrio kind of thing to me. Okay, um, I think he's a wonderful actor. Don't get me wrong, right? I think he can also you know branch out. In Jurassic World, right, he does a perfectly serviceable, just kind of, like, shitty businessman who is, like, shitty and amoral, right? But to me, that's not Vincent D'Onofrio playing on type. That's just, uh, you know, that's See, obviously... M- most of my diff- Vincent D'Onofrio is, um, is, was it Law & Order that he's on? He's on Law & Order? See, I... I, like, I, I think it's Law & Order. He's Law & Order. He's, 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 um, he's one of the main detectives in one, one of the mainline series. Uh, Law & Order Criminal Intent. He's like one of the main characters. Jeez, you know, fair enough. I didn't know that. Uh, but anyway, you know, so that you know, so uh, that's kind of I think where and I and look, I really don't. I don't I'm, I'm not reproaching the movie for this, right? I think this is actually really appropriate for kind of you know what what this movie is going for. This kind of like genre, you know, B movie. It's almost a throwback. They don't actually make movies like this all that much anymore. Um, David Iyer, which this makes a lot of sense because David Iyer. Um, you know, he's the director of uh, Suicide Squad, but he's also his big break was being the screenwriter for Training Day, uh, which is coincidentally a Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke picture from, I think, 2000. And it was directed by the same guy that directed Magnificent Seven, Antoine Fuqua, um, who, uh, you know, so I and so I think, you know, I think that the, this guy, he's he's in like the equalizer. Right. I'm trying to think what else uh, he's like famous for. But he's kind of like he's kind of famous, I think, for these kinds of these kinds of movies. And I think he executes really well on them. Um, a, a comparable picture, I think, by the way, uh, is John Wick. This reminded me a lot of John Wick uh, in the same way. Because I love it, John it, Wick. It, I love John Wick, too. And by the way, I think John Wick is better for a couple of reasons that I'll get into. Um, but the 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 mechanics of 
this movie and the they they overlap very well. It's a pretty big Venn diagram, right? Because that's also a movie to me where a lot of these, you know, like Ian McShane shows up in this movie and he, he, he you know, he's Ian McShane. You get it. You understand. You know, you just understand the movie. Willem Dafoe shows up in that movie and he's Willem Dafoe. And and right. I think that movie really capitalizes on the fact that its entire kind of supporting cast, you know, Adrian Palicki, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the guy, but the guy who plays Lester Freeman on um, on The Wire is in it. Um, you know, the guy who plays uh, Lieutenant, uh, well, whatever. Anyway, but my point is, Magnificent Seven is kind of the same thing where, you know, they they lean heavily on kind of the archetype and on on the actor playing two type in order to get across a lot of that personality and I think that's why it really succeeds you know from the perspective of ensemble movies and listen I think the other thing that really sets apart uh, Magnificent Seven and it's something that we've gotten extremely good at in the in the era of superhero movies is explaining through both like visually and like from a story perspective and kind of like everything else the differences in in characters like abilities and skill sets uh, in the original seven samurai you get a piece of this right kuzo is obviously just an amazing swordsman right um Kambe, you know he's he's riding around on a horse right he's using he's using bow and arrow uh uh uh, Kikucho has this giant, you know, this huge two-handed two uh, Daisho. Uh, uh, and, um, but, but like, the differences aren't quite there, yeah. right? And I think as you kind of track them through, okay, and then you get to kind of, like, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, right? You know, definitely differences in everything, and, and, it, and you can really start to see it, like, fray out. You get to Fellowship of the Ring, yeah, you know, Boromir had a very different skill set that Legolas had a very different skill set to Gimli, and now we're kind of at, like, peak character ability filmmaking right right where you know the adventure you know everything are these big ensemble um and and people's abilities are super well defined i think magnificent seven does an amazing job at that right in fact i think you know red harvest uh is uh, he he doesn't have much of a character in in like a like he's not like a protagonist he's not even really like a supporting character in the traditional sense he's kind of a walking plot device in that like but like is he's he even a like a plot device? Like he's just kind of like a dude that's I don't know. I, I felt that that Red Harvest was kind of like the 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 worst fleshed out character of of the whole lot. I think. Well, I think I think Red Harvest and Vasquez kind of both sit on that level. Um, See, I, so the thing with Vasquez is, I think I think you're right. This film was too short, and I think what they wanted to do was kind of go with like a a weird rivalry bromance with him and Chris Pratt's character. Um, so, you know, the problem was, what I thought Vasquez's thing was going to be was two guns. He mentions the two-gun kid or whatever. Right. Um, and there's all this talk. You know, and, th and then there's, like, there's one part of the fight scene where he's using two guns. And then they cut to Chris Pratt using two guns. And I was kind of like, really? Like, I, I – because I kind of thought that Chris Pratt was going to move into this almost like – well, whatever. Um – but yeah, I think I think I think Vasquez and Red Harvest are a little bit more. To me, Red Harvest is a plot device because one, he kills that one guy on the roof that one time. That kind of right, like, right, right. You know, that's a plot point that turns a scene. Um, and then two, he kills like the evil Indian guy that's that's getting that's getting all up on like budget Jennifer Lawrence's shit. Yeah, um, like I, I don't, I, I don't like. It, it felt weird because like. Red Harvest's main characterizations was like 
saying something well, he he like basically dissed white people food and then he killed the other indian and like that was like his, the entirety of his character yeah which was and, 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 native know, american excuse yeah. me and I think, and I think that that works in the context of a movie like this, right? We're obviously not, right. you know, we we have plenty of characters to chew on, right? I think having a, uh, I think having a few that are less, uh, uh, you know, less detailed is is kind of fine, um, and and works. But yeah, and to me, he's a plot device, kind of like wrapped in an aesthetic and an affectation, and that's good enough, right? Um, and I think the same thing is true for Vasquez. You know, I had a, I had a good sense for Vasquez's personality, right? Uh, but I don't think, you know, he doesn't... That's not a character to me that has wants and needs, right? He doesn't have goals and motivations. And I don't mean this to be disparaging, right? I, I think that um, so, you don't uh, need uh, that. I don't, I, don't, I don't think you actually need that in the same way in a movie like this. Um, but that is, it, you know, it does put him a little bit on the contrast to Sam Chisholm, who does have very clear goals. And, you know, his goals and his motivations are, you know, made clear, right? Good Knight's motivation and goals are made clear. Even, you know, Billy, right, who's kind of almost a supporting character to a subplot, which makes him a little bit of, like, his own, like, flinch. To me, he, he you know, he also has goals and motivations and you get him. Um, but yeah, and, and, and I really want to reiterate, this sounds like I'm being hard on the movie. I'm not, I'm trying to say that, you know, this is appropriate for a movie like this and I think it's totally fine and totally works. Yeah. So uh, the, the thing, the thing about Vasquez that I think was a huge miss and I think, I feel like this was what was intended, like may, maybe what was intended, um, may, maybe in like an earlier draft of the movie, but in, in the original Magnificent Seven, there's a character who has a moment where he says, you know, I'm on the run. I have no friends. I can't show my face in any town because I've got too many enemies, right? This is right after a long speech about, like, one of the benefits of being kind of like a hired gun is you have no enemies because you kill them all or something. And and then immediately, like, almost, like a scene later, he, he talks about how, like, that's a lie. He has tons of enemies. He can't do anything. And maybe after this is all done, he'll settle down in this little town, this little Mexican town and, you know, and be happy for a little while, start a family or whatever. And then he dies, um, which is, you know, kind of very poignant, right? Jeez. And I was, I was really expecting them to do that with Vasquez, right? Because, like, he, they set him up to, like, be on the run, be constantly being hunted, and then he'd have a town full of people who were grateful to him, which was, which was the plan of the, of the, of the first dude. Um, And then you could, like, you could kill him and make it very poignant. And I thought it was such a huge miss that, like, that like that that not only is there like nothing, but there's no like resolution to that character either. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, you know that you know so that does feel like see to, okay. To me, that doesn't necessarily feel like a miss because I don't think anything was like lacking. I guess okay. from like the setup, right? But I do understand how it's kind of like the potential is there and it doesn't quite get fulfilled. Uh, to me, I think actually, if you had swipped, if you had flipped the Jack Horn, uh, Horner death for the Vasquez death, that would have worked just fine. Right. I thought, you know, I thought the the Jack Horner death was okay, but it didn't, you know, I mean, you know, it was okay. And it got to me, but the, yeah, no, I I, I feel like, I, I, you know, yeah. So to me, I think, you know, Billy and Goodnight going out kind of on top of this thing, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Chris Pratt, Destroying the Gatling gun with his like trickery, gambling, wild, sure, right? You know, the, these are these are are kind of like these are super solid in the league of their own uh, kind of deaths. And the Jack Horner one 
works, but just barely works. Um, and that's okay, I think. Um, but yeah, I think it would have been, I, you know, I, I could see, I could have seen a death like you were talking about replace the Jack Horner one and kind of like push it to the next level. The problem with that kind of stuff though, and this is why it kind of comes back to pacing for me, is that you need time yeah. for this kind of thing. And they, there just wasn't enough, you know, there just weren't enough hours in the, in the day, uh, in order to make that kind of, uh, setup work. Yeah. I, um, I, I do want to say one thing though, that I've, I've been wanting to say ever since we, we said we were going to do this podcast or ever since I saw the movie is that. Goodnight Robichaux is the best fucking name for a character I've ever heard. I really wish I had thought up of that name. <laughs> Why? Why? I just, I, it just, it's just so perfect to me, right? Like, it just rolls off the tongue. It feels perfect to me. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I mean, obviously, you can see that I've, I've got, got a soft spot for these, like, Louisiana-type names with Beauregard. Um, sure. But, yeah. like, I just, I just, like, Goodnight Robichaux is just so perfect to me. Um, and it's got like it's you know it's it shortens well the goody I don't know I I I loved the name I love the character too, um but I, I you know I have to say I love the I love that character too I mean I you know I have a hard time saying that Sam Chisholm isn't my favorite, um, if I'm being real I think Kambe from the original Seven Samurai is probably my favorite character in anything ever of all time. Like, you know, like I, you know, I was describing to uh, some of our, I was describing to some of our WoW friends how the characters that I, you know, the, the you know, the characters that I RP uh, in World of Warcraft are all, you know, they all kind of take things from the different characters in Seven Samurai. But I've literally played a D and D game where my character was Kambe Shimada, right? And, uh, and he wasn't, it wasn't quite the same character, but it was like a clear homage based on it. Right. Tonric has a whole lot of combat in him. Baird has a ton of combat in him. Um, I think, uh, I, man, I just, I love that combat character so fucking much. He's, he, he's like so up my alley, um, that I have a hard time saying that Sam Chisholm wasn't my favorite. Um, that's fair though. So, uh, it all, it, so this is also something that kind of uh, bugs me, and I think is is kind of like a misstep of the movie. Um, but I I don't like that the villain got as much attention as he did, um, and I don't like that they changed Sam Chisholm's motivations to be personal yeah. rather than ethical. I I agree one hundred percent. Like that 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 you. So it was Yul Brenner who was a famous actor in his time that played that played the the the, the character in, in the original. I don't I don't know if his name was Sam Sam Chisholm in in, in the original. Um, let me look that up real quick. Uh, no, it's it's Chris Larrabee Adams is yeah his name is Chris because that name always sounded like way too like you know like in the way you say that like Ghoul Daniel. Right, like having the main character be Chris <laughs> Adams always felt weird to me. Yeah, that's original. also weird because I also think of Chris as being kind of you know how like you know how certain names have like a connotation to them to a certain extent, right? Like yeah. imagine you know just like make a snap judgment on the name. You know what does the name Matt look like to you versus you know the name Alexander, right? Those create kind of a different person, like a default version of that person in your mind sam chisholm fits a cowboy more than chris what was it chris chris larrabee adams yeah more than chris larrabee adams yeah. chris to me is uh uh is is kind of like a more hoity-toity name uh, yeah or than, like a uh, more suburban name like right you know i mean you know this is ironic my name is chris but um you know, like obviously i've done i've done away with it as much as i as i possibly can not because i have no dislike for the name but whatever um uh, but you know my point is um 
uh, it bugs me that Sam Chisholm is motivated by you know I so I think the ethos of this movie right it the plot the the themes right is very much boiled down to kind of like the uh, oh so you seek revenge and she's like I seek justice but I'll settle for revenge kind of thing obviously this is exactly the same thing right right um, yeah no I I absolutely agree right like. In, in both the Magnificent Seven and the Seven Samurai, like the motivations of 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 the Kambe character are pure, right? Like they are doing yeah. it because it's the right thing to do, um, and and much to like, but they're doing it because it's the right thing to do in a world that won't help them because they're just poor farmers and they can't afford to pay them, um. Uh, and th- you even lost a little bit of that. As- like, I- like I don't think they had any like, fa- like both both movies kind of have like a a, a fail. I don't know if the original Magnificent had a failed attempt, but like the original Seven Samurai has a scene where they have tried to get business, but no one's willing to fight for food. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know it's it's the strength it's the strength of of Kambe that really gathers the the other the other six members. Um, and that's also true. That that the strength aspect is also true in this movie. But but I agree with you. It kind of like makes makes him less noble. Yeah, and and I like I like the nobility. I specifically like Kambe's nobility, um, um, because he's noble. It you know it it is a it, you know. Obviously, so much of Seven Samurai is built into the class politics of kind of like Japan, right? And it's something that's a little bit alien to us, right? Like, I, you know, I, ironically, I think that a, Sam, a Seven Samurai kind of remake for like a Western audience is not very suited to a Western, right? Like, I don't think the a Western. No, is actually, actually, like you're, uh, you're uh, absolutely uh, right. They they try and do it, like they 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 have one of the characters do the "I was a farmer" thing, but it doesn't ring. It rings very hollow. Because it's not like there's a class thing that prevents him from becoming a cowboy. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like exactly. Um, and I think, and it's funny because I think you could literally do this exact thing, right? But just with like knights in England in the like the Middle Ages, right? This right. just becomes to me. This just becomes like a Braveheart-ish kind of ripoff movie. Um, uh, but uh, but you know, we want to do it with the Western, so we kind of do it with the Western. Uh, but you know, one of the things I like about uh, I like about Kambe's character. A couple. I mean, I love so many things about this character. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think really makes him work is kind of like the um, uh, stuck in a mindset or like in a world that he can't escape. Right? You know, it, you, there's there's a lot of sense to Kambe that he doesn't want to be a samurai. Right? You know, for the first scene, uh, you know, he it has him cut off all of his hair and kind of pretend to be a monk, and that actually does, and that and that like works. For the the rest of the movie, he's kind of bald or, you know, very very short haired compared to everybody else who have these kind of typical samurai top knots, right? Um, but you know, there's like there's this sense to kind of convey that like he wishes he could have been something else, but he was born to he was born as a samurai and trained as a samurai and been a samurai all his life, and now he's too old and stuck in his ways to do anything else. Right. And so like the and so and I think that that and I think that that works um, and I think that that works for samurai. And ironically, I think this actually works really well for cowboy movies, too. Right. The Searchers is super famous because of one fucking shot that's all about that same principle. Right. About how John Wayne's character is too kind of wild and too much a part of the Wild West that he can't 
you know, he can't leave his, like, kind of cowboy ways behind, walk into the homestead, and just be, you know, like, a, you know, just be, like, a husband and a father, right? He can't, he cannot do that. And I, and I find it, and I just, I thought, I thought, I think that parallel is definitely very much there, but you lose all of that when you make it all about revenge for Sam Chisholm, which, which really kind of sucks, I think. Um, and I wish that they had kind of, uh... I wish that they had kind of left it alive. Also, you know, you know, not for nothing, but I also think that Sam Chisholm, you know, I think Denzel Washington does great in the part, and obviously you can't make Denzel Washington white, but I think Sam Chisholm works a little bit better if he's a Confederate person, especially as a reflection of Kambe, because, like, one of, the, one of the things about Kambe is that he's a veteran of a war that he lost, Right. He talks about it all the time, about how they, you know, he, and then he, you know, he eventually recruits his buddy, um, Shichiroji, um, about how they lost, you know, like how they lost this war. Right. And he's okay with that. He's made his peace with that kind of thing. Um, and that archetype for like Confederate officer who goes to the wild West, right. What? After, you know, like after the, th there's, you know, that, which is, that's it, it's, it's present in both, um, good night and in, and in, and in, Chris Pratt's character, Josh Faraday, as well, mm -hmm. right? Chris Pratt's character calls it the War of Northern Aggression. I almost yeah. laughed out loud <laughs> in the fucking theater. Like, um, and so, and I think, and so, you know, and I get it, and I think that stuff, I, I think that stuff is good, and I think that stuff works when you put it on Faraday, when you put it on um, uh, on Goodnight, especially because I think Goodnight's arc is so tailored it is so well tailored to that that you kind of almost need it to a certain extent um but yeah it, it was a little bit weird because obviously i want so bad for Kame to be just like represented back to me on the screen and uh and he did receive kind of uh kind of changes i you know i have to say my other favorite character i love kuzo um who is you know the stoic badass samurai and this one uh kuzo uh is as like kind of like Good night's like assassin buddy, well-meaning friend, and they have that you know like that gun duel, but with the knife, you know, like I'm such a sucker for that shit. I think so, that stuff is is so, all is all great. I was so so. This is the I think it might be the only thing that I think the original that the original Magnificent Seven does better than both this new movie and um and the original Seven Samurai is in the the original the like. The scene. So I, I'm curious to see how you feel about this because you've obviously never seen the original Magnificent Seven, but they do like the the test duel with guns, and then he like randomly pulls out the knife and and, and hurls it for the for the real duel. Um, like the kind of inciting incident in the original Magnificent Seven is somebody says that like it's there's rumor going around that the the badass can, um, that that he can he can out he can throw a knife faster than somebody can draw and shoot a gun. Um, and the challenge scene happens with the knife, um, like, like the, the, the non-lethal version. And then they move mm -hmm. to the, to the lethal version with the, with the knife. And I felt like that flowed through a lot better. It made a lot more sense as to why, like, why Billy Rocks would have thrown off his gun. Like he wouldn't have thrown off his gun belt cause he would have always have been using the knife in the first place. Right. And you could right. even use like a regular knife for the first one and then use the hairpin for the second one for dramatic effect. I just felt like it didn't work nearly as well this one as it did in, in the original Magnificent Seven. Um, like I said, I think it's the only thing that the original Magnificent Seven does better than both Seven Samurai. You know, that's actually funny. That, that moment really worked for me. Um, you know, it's one of those moments that um, 
I think, you know, you this gets built into stories sometimes when kind of, like, you foreshadow something and it pays off, right, for, like, for the audience. You know, sometimes you can surprise the audience and kind of come out of left field and that feels gratifying. But I think it's pretty gratifying to have, you know, he... He, he faces sideways, he pulls off the gun belt, and then the camera does this kind of POV shot right behind his head with the uh, with the knot and the and the two hairpins. But I think anybody in everybody in America understood what was coming next, right? Like we're all kind of culturally literate. But I think that you know the movie kind of throwing the audience a bone and letting the audience kind of have that moment of. I think he's going to use the hairpin. Oh, he did use the hairpin. Aren't I smart for catching that kind of thing, right? And this isn't the, you know, this isn't, you know, this, it's, it's not, it's not super subtle or whatever, but it also kind of, but it, you know, it worked a lot for me. It worked, I think, for my audience, which by the way was crazy. I actually tried to go on Saturday night, but the movie was sold out two weeks into its run, which really? I thought was. Yeah, uh, you know, honestly, the mechanics of the movie theaters near me are are crazy. Like, same thing happened with Suicide Squad. To be honest, I went to go see, um, I went to go see a movie that wasn't Suicide Squad, and there were so many people, you know, at the theater, and I was like, what the what the fuck are all these people doing? And then one of the you know one of the ushers gets up and he said, you know. And this is like three or four weeks after Suicide Squad came out. It's like the eight eight thirty and nine thirty showings of Suicide Squad are, are sold out, and everybody went on. They like walked away, and I was like, "What? You know, like what is this theater kind of thing?" Um, but I think I think those moments are gratifying, right? And I think that 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 uh, that hairpin moment worked pretty well. To be honest, uh, you know, he had he had also just some solid Billy Billy Rocks had had some of these solid moments. I love that thing where he gets the knives and he's like, "Oh, it's simple." That he does his like you know, kind of like quasi martial arts stabby yeah, yeah. bit. I that you know, that got a laugh. I thought that was that was probably the funniest moment in the movie. Um uh, so I, I've got I've got a question for you. maybe you can explain this to me because because I, I feel like I was missing something. So the, they make a big deal out of Jack Horn's gun, right? The Pigeon Brothers have it when they show up and then and then Jack Horn fucking comes out of nowhere and like beats the shit out of them. At one point, with the butt of his gun, but I don't think he ever fires that gun. Like at any point in the movie, yeah, that giant, giant like rifle, right? Yeah. Do, is, mm. do you know why? Like it, it just—it seemed no, like that I was. Have no idea. It seemed like that was supposed to be a thing at some point, but it never was. Yeah. Like at one point, I, uh... I think he was stabbing somebody with like a kitchen knife that he pulled out of his back pocket. Like. <laughs> yeah. You know, I kind of like I you know, um I you can sell me on this kind of like woodsy mountain men throws hatchets at people, right? As long as you don't have the um as long as you don't have like a tomahawk throwing Indian character, Native American character, I think you kind of are okay, right? And obviously sure. you know, the the Native American was a bow and arrow guy. So I think you don't you kind of don't didn't like the, the, the like, the, uh, uh, the, uh, kind of, like, opportunity space for these two characters wasn't, wasn't overlapping too much. Um, but the weird thing to me was that nobody used, it's not like anybody used shotguns, um, or, or kind of, like, I, you know, I was expecting there to be, you know, maybe, like, an explosives guy, which I thought Chris Pratt was gonna go into, and he's like, oh, man, you know, 
I've always wanted to blow stuff up. I was like, well, this is the story of how Chris Pratt character becomes the explosives guy. But then that didn't really kind of pan out, um, which I thought was very weird, right? I, I, I think you can definitely get a lot out of pistols. But to me, you know, you can kind of, you can get pistols, you know, you give combat pistols, right? You give, maybe you give Vasquez two pistols. You give the mountain guy a shotgun, right? Or like a hunting rifle kind of thing, maybe. Um you know, you give, you give, uh, I, I don't know. I just thought that was, uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I that was a little weird. It, it was weird too. Cause like, because like, so, so it's one of the staples of these movies is kind of like the upstart that, um, that kind of is, is the apprentice and that, and like, that's kind of like what Chris Pratt's character is kind of supposed to be, but isn't really cause he's not like a novice. He's just kind of like younger. Um, and like, it felt weird because because he's supposed like he's supposed to be good with his weapon like they they make a whole big deal about like he touched my gun and like him touching guns and they never go anywhere with that like yep like I I, I mm-hmm. there were a lot of things that like felt like they were supposed to go somewhere that never ended up doing it like like you said right like a mountain man with hatchets is a fine archetype but then why give him a giant fucking gun with his initials carved giantly into the butt of it. <laughs> No, I know. It was so weird. Even if you want to give him like a lumberjack axe, right? And he's like a very melee kind of fighter. Right. I think that plays, right? You have this whole thing, right? You know, even Billy is like throwing these knives. He's not really, he's doing a little bit of kind of like melee stabbing with them. Um, and I think that would have been, a, that would have been almost a better archetype for them to focus on. Uh, but, you know, I, I you know, jeez, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think um, I also think that there's something a little bit unsatisfying about kind of um, th- this to me is where John Wick becomes truly excellent, right? I think John Wick is definitely like that. That to me is like an A movie, right? Like it's an excellent, excellent movie. I've watched it. I've actually watched it a whole bunch, like way more than I ever expected to rewatch that movie. Um, but they make guns work well for them in their kind of choreography i don't think it's actually super satisfying to kind of watch you know watch someone shoot a gun and then a guy maybe 20 yards away flails a bit and falls over right Right. um that doesn't have the same kind of like oomph and like impact that you get when um you know like like in a sword fight between like this you know or 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 like a gun gun foo fight which you get in like john wick or like the matrix yeah, exactly. Right. I think those gung fu. Fi- I think those gun fu fights. You know, work. You never. I. You know, you never saw these people reload. Uh, kind of thing. I think. It, I think it worked for in certain instances. Right. Um, you know, good night plays when it comes to like gun shit because he's obviously a you know a sharpshooter. You know, you've got Billy throwing knives that plays. You've got uh, uh, Jack Horner throwing hatches that plays. You've got you know bow and arrow. I think is also uh, you know also plays and is and is more kind of like dynamic just because. I don't really know what, what I think it's because it leaves the arrow behind and that just kind of looks better on the screen because, you know, maybe this is just like a me thing. Right. But with gun, with guns, I can't help but see nothing happen almost. Right. I, I watch the shot go, but I, it's not like I can see the bullet. And so it's not as like satisfying in the same way that like somebody getting like plugged with an arrow is. Yeah, that makes sense. I I definitely agree with you. I, I think I think the appeal in in a lot of, I think the appeal in this movie, or at least to what I found, is kind of like, even though it wasn't as gun fooey as 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 the Matrix or as John Wick, like there was still a very much an amount of smoothness of like bam, 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 throw, pull a gun off of a dead person, bam, right in the chest. You know, like like I yeah, that yeah. worked for me a lot. 
it's I you know and the, the, like everything else kind of in this movie right I don't think it well besides the pacing and stuff uh, I don't think it ventures into bad territory it's just you know this is the stuff to me that that this is the ceiling right this is the stuff that puts a ceiling on the Magnificent Seven kind of breaking yeah. through and being something better you know like uh, uh, kind of better than the sum of its parts right you know the, like John Wick is very straightforward and B movie in every aspect but the two things in that movie make it kind of so crazy one the kind of ambient world yeah the world building's amazing is so good in that movie and two the action right it's so well choreographed and it's just such a i mean makes sense these guys are stunt coordinators the directors of that film um everything is so well choreographed and the flow moves from kind of point a to point z with such grace that i can really say that there's you know uh uh like there's like beauty in that, right? This is something. This is where that movie goes above and beyond. I don't. I don't think that Magnificent Seven really went above and beyond anywhere, right? But it, you know, I'm not gonna yell at my kid for coming home with a B plus on every paper, right? Um, I also think. Uh, I also think that the battle scene was well choreographed, but it was fundamentally undercut by not having the geography of the town very well established um this is something that seven samurai goes out of its way to do because they show like you know they show a big map and they come back to this map a bunch of times right yeah to kind of show this is the eastern part this is the western part um it does a thing and this is something that i think you know this happens in other movies right this happens in the battle of helm's deep very famously um but it has anchoring establishing shots you know, when you're fighting a battle and, and it's a long and, you know, this is like a 40 minute sequence, right? But it's all set in one location, right? A cheat that Seven Samurai figured out how to do was to shoot certain aspects of the building from the exact same, not, not even close, but like the exact same camera angles, right? So that you could cut back and to it and instantly reorient the audience to where you're going on, right? There's that back entrance, right? In Seven Samurai, there's this back entrance. There's all the spearmen or whatever, right? Riders come in and then the spearmen come out and they push the rest of the riders away. They always shoot that back entrance from the exact same from the exact same angle. So even though they come back to that entrance three, four, maybe even five times, I, you know, I don't count obviously, you always are rooted right in that same establishing shot and you know exactly where you are in the village right and this happens all over the village it's not just this back entrance but this is the you know it's just the the example they didn't have the same kind of effect uh, you had a stood where the church was right but kind of the geography of everything else where that mountain line was what the ridge line was all of that other kind of stuff was kind of amorphous so you didn't get a good sense of you know, uh, kind of like the tactical movements when it came to the battle. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think they tried to go for it, right? Like they did the part where they were planning out how they were going to do things. And I think that was supposed to play into like the lighting, lighting the carts on fire, but it didn't really work out. I, I really hope this, this movie gets like a director's cut. I don't think it will, but like, I feel like, Maybe with like fifteen to thirty more minutes of screen time, a lot of these things could like could have been like I feel like there was like 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 a, just a little bit that was left out that that really would have made this film a lot better, if that makes sense. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think I think really what it is is it's kind of... Uh, I don't think, ironically, I don't think Peter Jackson is like a super legendary, like, visionary filmmaker, right? You know, Peter Jackson isn't a guy like Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese who can do, you know, any number of kinds of genres of this movie. Anybody who's seen The Lovely Bones understands what I'm getting at. But Peter Jackson has, has a... Uh, has a... Uh, uh, a certain subset of skills and one of his skills is he has these amazingly good sweeping establishing shots right and we didn't quite get one of those for the village and it's tough because it's you know i don't think you want to do a shot you know i don't think you want to do something where it's like there's a voiceover right and the camera swoops to the forest from the village right and then it pulls back to the village and then it swoops to the mountains and then it pulls back and it swoops to these barricades that's too obvious right but you do want to have some kind of like like long 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 you know uh kind of like master um, establishing shot that gives us a good sense of the choreography, um, or sorry, of the geography of, you know, of the village and, and the surrounding area to understand kind of like, where was the Gatling gun really, right? What hill was right. it on that it was firing at the church? Also, I really, you know, I don't want to be nitpicky or anything, but I definitely found myself wondering about the mechanics of the Gatling gun from that far away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if, if it would work that way. I was well, like, first of all, yeah. that magazine, you know, I get it. You know, like, I get it. I think the Gatling, I understand what it means narratively, and I really don't want to give it too much shit for this, because I hate when people do this kind of nitpicky bullshit, right? Uh, you know, hashtag nitpicky bullshit, but, like, the Gatling gun seemed to be, like, 300 yards away right and then and then if they put in this like and and shooting in very yeah, and, then, tight, and they put in like, this tiny magazine that looks like there's like 20 bullets in it right you know it, it's not getting you know it's not feeding obviously you know feeding it kind of with a belt doesn't make sense that's obviously anachronistic right but then it gets you know it's just mowing down this, this village and we spend minutes on it right where it is firing constantly right and these bullets are like piercing like walls and shit and i'm just like what what is this gatling gun why didn't they use this in any of you know like anyway you know but i, I definitely no uh, absolutely and I, I i you know i think another thing that didn't come across great but i recognize kind of from like the what it was from like you know from from seven samurai is like you know the 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 master who is Billy Rocks and or is it Kuzo Kuzo, yeah Kuzo is is he's a master of his craft but he's ultimately defeated by the superior mm -hmm. weapon right like Kuzo gets shot um, oh. with a gun which is not a thing Heartbreak. that he has access to and, and and you know Billy Rocks gets mowed down by a Gatling gun you know he can't throw a knife yeah. to the Gatling gun <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but um and like it makes sense first of all. Like, so I, I get why they, they do it for that reason, but, like, I also felt like Billy Rocks' death was massively overshadowed by good by Yeah, good uh, the fact that Billy um, Rocks spent, like, half of that fight at the top of the, the the steeple, I get it, you know, like, I get it because you have to put him and Goodnight together, and Goodnight is the sharpshooter, right? So, you can't, but, like, yeah. it seems to me an incredible waste of his, of his knife-throwing kind of kung fu melee fighting talents to put him up there. But I'm not going to begrudge, you know, I'm not going to begrudge the movie those kinds of logical, uh, uh, shall we say, in inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to touch on, um, and by touch on I mean go into in-depth because we have about ten minutes left. Um, 
this movie let me down to a certain extent, uh, and I've mentioned this, uh, because it characterized its villain. Um, Seven Samurai doesn't do this, right? The bandits are functionally nameless. Um, I think one, I think the one that like the master one with the gun gets a name, but I can't even remember what it is to be honest with you. Um, and I, you know, he gets a couple of lines kind of thing. Um, but you know, we spend a lot of time with Peter Skarsgård, uh, his character, uh, um, Bartholomew Bogue, which I actually kind of think is a great name. Uh, good, good naming, good naming in this movie. Um, but yeah, Bartholomew, yeah, Bartholomew Bogue, you know, he gets, you, we, we cut to him in his kind of ritzy mansion. He explains his, his kind of like ethos at least twice. Um, did, you know, like, what, what are you, what are your thoughts? Did he work for you as a, as a character? Um, so again, just for context, um, the, the villain in the original Magnificent Seven has a little bit more personality than the one in Seven Samurai. Um, he does have the, the line, which it, it, the, the, uh, the, if God didn't want them sheared, he wouldn't have made them sheep line, but it's not nearly as much, right? Like you get, you get the scene essentially in the beginning and you get a scene towards the end where he talks to the, where he talks to, okay. So spoilers for Magnificent Seven, the original right. Magnificent Seven, but like, um, the, somebody in the village sells them out and the bandit leader has them all cornered, takes all their guns, and is like, you guys can just leave. And he gives them their guns back, which he's like, I don't care. Like, if I kill you guys, maybe people will come down from your country and murder me. So I'm going to let you go. I'll even give you your gun back, guns back. Just, like, leave. Um, and then he gives them their guns back, and surprise, surprise, they don't fucking leave. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a really weird moment in that movie. But, like, you know, he's only there for, like... Like, he... he, he even his speech there, his talk there isn't very much. And so, so like, I, 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 I agree with you, I think, to an extent that, like, he's, there's, there's a little, there's a little too much to him, like, there's a little too much of him for a character that's, like, very, very, very shallow, right? We get it. He's a robber baron. We get it. All he cares about is money. He's willing to murder the fuck out of these poor people to get, to get there. That's, like, the point. Um... And, you know, I think they did, they did, there was a nice touch of, like, recruiting the miners, um, where, like, you know, they show up to help put out the fire in the church, and he's like, you're not getting paid to put out fires. And, you know, I think that that all worked very well together, but I think that that's fully established with, like, the first, the, the opening scene, and maybe, like, maybe, like, just a, like, a little touch somewhere, like, you know, like, like, I don't even think you need to cut to his mansion to listen to him monologue. Or maybe you do just for, like, a second of, like, like you know, they dare fuck with me and just... like, like it, 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 I th They spend just a little too much time on I think the cut I, to the I, mansion I was built to... Um, uh, so, it got very little... It was a little bit weird. It got very little, like, attention. But there's this moment where he's like... You get you where you know Sam Chins is like you got a week right you know like three days for that guy to get there one day for him to play him three days for them to ride back kind of thing um and um and so that so that's it's a timeline clear timeline okay you know I get that um by the way I think the timeline should just be longer because then you can sell me on kind of a a, a training montage better I think that would make it work but you know whatever right. you know. 
make this is the movie they made. I'm not going to critique them for you know going you know not making the well whatever. Anyway, um, the uh, uh, and then you cut to the mansion, and it's in the middle of the night, and he gets this news, and he's like, you know, like I want an army. And I think he's just like we ride, you know, like 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 let's ride at dawn kind of thing, right? And to me, I caught it. and I was like, so that's setting up that they're gonna get there a day early. Okay, that's suspenseful. Here's some dramatic irony. They're gonna surprise them, right? Um, and then you have Red Harvest kind of like goes out into the woods and he comes back and he's like, tomorrow at dawn. And I was like, ah, here's our payoff, right? Tomorrow at dawn. It's only been a couple of days. Or whatever, and now we're gonna kind of get a moment of we're not ready. You said we had seven days, you know, like that kind of thing. But that never came, and I was a little bit like, what? Wait, really? What? <laughs> they kind of let it drop a little bit. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of moments in this film where I feel like they just kind of let it drop, right? Like the whole scene with Red Harvest is like they show a big uh, a big pulled back shot of Red Harvest riding away from the village, and then like. Ten minutes later, they show a big drawn back shot of Red Harvest riding into the village. It's like I found. Yeah, see, them. to me, it's you like, know, and, and you didn't even have like orders to do so. I thought that was, you know, like if he had gotten the orders from Sam Chisholm to be like, hey, you know, listen, go out into the, you know, if he had said, you know, we still have three days, go out into the forest, right, set some traps, whatever, who cares, right? He goes out right. and then almost immediately comes back in, and Sam's like. I see, you know, we, you know, Sam's like, what are you doing back so soon? He's like, we don't have three days. That's a, you know, that's a rewrite to that moment that makes it play better to me. Um, but I do want yeah. to, uh, so, but the thing, you know, so the thing about Peter Skarsgård, and I'm pretty sure this is literally what they were thinking. I'm pretty sure they watched Hopper, the, the grasshopper in Bugs Life, who, by the way, steals that whole movie and makes it good. That movie is shit without Hopper, Right. I have to rewatch. You didn't the wait. Oh, I thought you said you watched it. Is that not one of the ones you listed? I, I did not get. Ah. No, I didn't get a chance I, to okay. rewatch it. I watched Hawk the Slayer and uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. Surprising, absolutely no one, treats, because but. I think Pixar is one overrated and DreamWorks is better, and two, uh, Bugs Life is unfairly maligned in the in the kind of Pixar Pixar canon as one of their better outings. You have Kevin Spacey as Hopper the Grasshopper, right? And he is so. Oh, he's so good. He makes that whole movie, right? I think I think a lot of the kind of quote unquote samurai in that movie don't don't necessarily like work. A lot of them are kind of one note and jokey. Um, flick. It, well, I mean, it, it, no, sure, version, sure. Right? Okay, actors. hold on. Sure, it is right. But you know, I you know I talk about stakes all the time on this podcast, right? Hopper is the guy that just like he is a stakes factory in that movie. He makes stakes for the good guys. He makes stakes for the bad guy. He just he ratchets up the tension and the suspense and the drama in that movie so fucking well. And I think he he God he's so good and he he he's really good, right? And I think he makes that movie. And I think they were trying to capture some of the, the, the magic of Hopper in Bartholomew Bogue. And they just failed miserably to the point where I, you know, I would have recommended a, um, you know, to the point where I don't think these guys, you know, I don't think the bad guy needs a personality. I think he needs whatever. I think you can make it about the dynamic between um, the villagers, right, uh, and... Um, 
the villagers and the cowboys and it'll still play and it'll still work better like the original does kind of like you know so, something like you know like a little bit like lord of the rings where you know what fucking sauron is evil we get it bandits are mean bad guys sure right you know you know you don't you don't have yeah. to spend any you don't have to spend any time selling me on that um yeah, I mean, so something that, that kind of stuck out at me is that, like, in the scene in the mansion, he, like, pulls out a gun and shoots the <laughs> sheriff in the heart just to show how how heartless he is. And it's like, you know you just did that, at, like, you just did that at the beginning of the movie, right? You, you shoot the main villager's husband right in the heart in the exact same fucking way. Like, literally the exact same deadpan, walk up, place, pull the trigger. Like, you didn't have to do it twice. We get it. <laughs> Yeah, that is really true. Um, like I said, you know, not enough, not enough to be bad. I, you know, really mm. not enough to be bad. Absolutely. But the, you know, all of these things are the things that keep the Magnificent Seven from greatness. Ironically, I do, I do recommend seeing it. Um, I think it is worth. You know, it, it was worth my whatever it was now like 15 bucks or whatever i think it will be worth most people's 15 bucks i don't think that this is this isn't a v you know this isn't a dvd kind of movie first of all because i don't think it'll play on a smaller screen um and second of all because um you know if you this is a movie i'm never gonna have to watch again right i got everything out of this movie that i that i not possibly could but wanted to get out of this movie just from my my initial viewing so this is a you know go catch it in the theater and you know, call it a day movie to me. Yeah, this is the type of movie that, like, around Christmas time, I might watch with my dad. Oh my god, type this of be thing. So, this is a like, this is a oh man, what a dad movie. Yeah, this is a dad movie. <laughs> Which is funny because uh, I think Antoine Fuqua is pretty good at these kinds of dad movies. Um, you know, he's pretty good at these kind of dad movies in general. Um, the the the. <laughs> The uh, the Equalizer, which I think is his 2014 movie, he makes a Jesus Christ makes a fuck ton of movies, right? Um, is literally about you know like a middle aged, world weary you know guy whose you know experience and world weariness makes him a huge badass. And I don't know what demographic that movie plays to. Besides dads, like you know, like that's who that movie is made for. It's not like I, you know, it's not like me watching this movie as a twenty-five-year-old is going to look at this. So, uh, you know, same thing too, right? Shooter, Olympus has fallen. Um, Olympus has fallen. I well, never mind. Um, Shooter and, and Olympus has fallen. Right? You know, Tears of the Sun, Training Day. These are all very dad movies. I think Magnificent Seven is right up in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So that that is the official some derps watch watch movies recommendation. Go see it in the theaters with your dad. <laughs> yeah, um, dude. Uh. Uh, uh, I think that's about it. Unless you, know, you want to say anything uh, else, I think I think I'm solid. I think I've said my piece. I'm glad that I'm glad that we got to cover this movie just from the perspective of I got to gush about Seven Samurai, which. May have, you know, it may have overwritten my typical gushing about Batman versus Superman. Yeah, that's, that, that is true. Um, and I'm, I'm glad we got to talk about it, too, because it forced me to watch The Seven Samurai, which is a movie I am very happy, like, you know, you know, not that I don't trust you, buddy, but sometimes when you're really happy about something, I, I take it with a grain of salt. But, no, me, no way. <laughs> 
but having seen Seven Samurai, I'm, I'm very happy I did. I'm very happy it got me to see the original Magnificent Seven, and I'm very, very happy. I didn't get to talk about them at all, but Battle Beyond the Stars and Hawk the Slayer. Hawk the Slayer is one of the, like, straight up, it's one of, like, the best, like, it is one of the best So Bad It's Good movies I have ever seen. <laughs> wow, jeez. Um, if you, if, I feel like it should be, I think there's a secret reference to um, Hawk the Slayer in this movie, right? Like, so the three compa- three the three companions in um, in Hawk the Slayer are a giant, uh, a, an elf with a bow, and a dwarf with, like, a whip. But, like, and so you've got Jack Horn as the giant and Red, Red Harvest as the as the bowman and like that random short man in that that like has chris pratt's horse like that explains why he's a short person instead of like any other gambling person i think that might be a secret reference to interesting uh you know i obviously would have never guessed that um yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always down for, I'm always down for another installation of some derps talk about movies. Uh, we we just announced our, or we just announced, we just decided upon uh, our upcoming roster. We're going to be doing uh, Doctor Strange, Assassin's Creed, and Rogue One to finish out the year. So I guess look forward to those, uh, those, those morsels of our of our cinephile sides coming out. But uh, I don't know. Otherwise, is there is there anything else you want to plug, my good chum? Uh, I don't think so. I, I I think that's about it. Um, if you want to watch us, or if you want to watch us play D anD D. Um, you can watch the twitch.tv slash some derps play games. If you want to email us about what you thought of Magnificent Seven, uh, you can email us at some derps play games at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, and on SoundCloud, and you can like and subscribe and all that good stuff. Uh, you know, we, we'd love to read your emails if we got any of them. <laughs> uh, so please send them in. Uh, thank you for tuning in, uh, loyal listeners. Yeah, until next time, loyal listeners. <laughs>